it started when I was very stressed at work one day and I uh, felt really unwell and felt really faint and panicky, kind of panic attacky. I ended up going to the doctor who told me that my blood pressure was so catastrophically high that by all right, she should hospitalize me right then and there that I could have a stroke, which was a shock for a 28 year old. That's Amy. She's talking about the events that led up to her making a really big change in her life. I begged not to be put on medication and to see if I could try and make some lifestyle changes for myself. And it was the first moment that I had to really look at my life and admit to myself I hated everything. Nothing was working and I was wretched. And that was the beginning for me of a journey of learning to take care of myself and realising that soldiering through everything that made me miserable wasn't a sign of strength and no one was going to give me any points for it. What I found was little tiny changes led to more changes and more and it grew and grew until my life transformed. Trust me, I'm like a smart person. From The Conversation, this is Trust Me, I'm an Expert a podcast where we ask the academic experts to surprise, delight and inform us with their research. It's a brand new year, a brand new day. And today we're talking about what you've probably been thinking about, how to make a big change in your life. We'll hear more from Amy in a minute and how she set some goals to make some big changes in her life. But one thing she was really upfront about is the fact that change is hard. Most of us need help. So I found some. Today, experts who've researched this terrain about what works and what doesn't work when you're trying to make a big change in your life and set some goals, whether they're big or small, are going to be talking about the evidence on this from the world of academic research. We'll hear from Amanda Salas, an NHMRC Senior Research Fellow from the Bowdoin Institute of Obesity, Nutrition, Exercise and Eating Disorders at the University of Sydney, on what exactly is happening inside your body when you get that feeling like, oh, I've just eaten too many Christmas treats, I've had too many New Year's drinks, and it's time to get that health kick started. When you start eating less, you may be moving more, your body will first dip into your glycogen stores. And that'll also release not only the weight of the glycogen in your body, which is about half a kilo, it will also release the weight of the water that's carried with that glycogen, which is around could be, you know, a couple of kilos. And Lisa Williams, a social psychologist at UNSW, who'll tell us about what the research shows on sticking to a goal beyond the middle of January. One kind of surefire way to set up a goal that you may not meet in the end is to set goals for which you have zero intrinsic enjoyment. But before we get to the experts and the science, I want to get back to Amy for a minute. She's not an academic. She's a friend of a friend. But she has some lived experience of making some huge changes in her life. So I want to let her tell her story a bit more here. And I'm hoping you can keep her in the back of your mind when you hear later on what the experts have to say about the science of big, big changes. Whether that's improving your health, emotional changes, losing some weight or trying to create some new good habits. Here's Amy again. The first thing I needed to do was lose a little bit of weight, which was a confronting thing for a medical professional to tell you. Uh, but once I actually started to change my diet, to change my routines, to lose a little bit of weight, it gave me the most incredible sense of 
empowerment. Like I actually affected change on something. I could do something. So I started talking to my partner about changes we needed to make in our relationship, which was getting pretty unhappy by that point. And I started looking around for another job. So rather than just looking around for another job in my own industry, I admitted to myself what I always wanted to do was work in the arts. And that's where I was going to go. So that's where I started looking and I found a wonderful job which I absolutely adored that just felt like it was a miracle, you know, for a classical music organisation that um, I'd admired all my life. Uh, But with the good came bad as well. I think some of the changes that I wanted to bring into my relationship were, uh, my quite broken relationship by that point, was a straw that broke the camel's back. But it was also, in retrospect, looking back, enough of a profound change that it left this huge vacuum where I could build a new life in the space that for the last 12 years with my husband had been trying to, you know, to make things work instead. I could try something new. When you sort of sat down to do the first thing, which was maybe lose a bit of weight... Did you have any idea that it would lead to these other things? or None whatsoever. I completely divorced myself from my own life. My entire focus was get through the day, just cope. And it was only the beginning of realising how profoundly unhappy I was with a lot of different things and this wasn't working for me on any level anymore. What factors do you think made this attempt to change successful where others perhaps had not been so? It was how profound my failure was that I think made the space for me to rebuild things. I had to leave the industry that I'd spent, you know, all of my career in so far. My marriage had failed in the first year of being married. You know, we had invited everybody and we'd made vows and I hadn't even finished sending out the thank you cards and it was broken. You know, the, the, the shame and the, the failure was complete. So I had no choice but to start from scratch. And I was so determined that I couldn't fail this way again and it wasn't going to beat me. I really owe a lot looking back to this doctor who sent me to um, the exercise physiologist and a nutritionist. And I remember when the nutritionist handed me a a photocopy of what a balanced meal should look like and the, the size of the portions being really shocked and thinking, no one could possibly live on so little, you know, or just leaves, you know, I, by temperament. You know those stories about um, Churchill where he just lives on champagne and lobster and, and cigars? That's how I would prefer to live my life if given half the chance. But the fact that I had to keep going and I adjusted and there was a professional there for, to help me through that transition to understanding what a balanced diet really looked like um, made all the difference for me in being able to build better habits and start again from scratch. The other part of the success is I liked the way I looked. I liked the way it made me feel. And so it was only hard for the first couple of weeks while I was adjusting. And that's what spurred me on beyond that initial shock period. And I have to ask, how's your blood pressure now? It's perfect. (laughs) And I was terrified that my changes would be temporary and that I would slump back into habits and I would put the weight back on. But I have kept the 25 kilos off for the last six years. Wow. I thought you were talking about like a 
like a few kilos, like five kilos, but you're talking about 25 kilos. That's, yeah. It's a very impressive change. I want to ask what you think about the role of willpower um, is in making a big change. I feel like willpower is a muscle, but it's not one that you want to rely on all the time. So the, the image that pops into my head when I think about willpower is the strength to be able to, if you fell off a cliff, to hold on like the hero in a movie and pull yourself back up. But you wouldn't want to live your life dangling off that cliff like that. I am not strong enough to live on willpower alone. It's helped. I've learned how to exercise it. But it's much, much better to change your life and not put yourself in situations where you need to use the willpower or live on willpower alone. People often sit on the knowledge that they need or they want to make a career change for many years Mm. before they finally push themselves to do it. So what insights do you think you might be able to offer for somebody who is perhaps considering that sort of a change in their life? I really think I owe a lot to the power of misery, to be honest, that it's misery like pain being a symptom of that something that you should change take your hand off the hot plate that my misery was a symptom you need to change something I I, I cannot overstate how unhappy I was and that kind of desperation was almost like a survival instinct well I've got to try something and I have nothing left to lose you know I'm, I'm willing to walk away from this because I'm so unhappy that's a really unhealthy way to go about making a change but I had, I had thought for some reason that if I was unhappy in this, my first chosen career, then that would reflect on me, my strength of character, you know, that I would be a failure if I didn't persevere rather than it, success is finding something that you love and makes you happy, not just being able to endure misery day after day. So... Being able to pause and not just soldier on on some really stupid assumptions and listen to yourself and notice how you're feeling, I think, is a really important thing so you don't have to use the power of misery like I did. My last two questions are what advice might you have for someone contemplating a big change and any other thoughts you'd like to share? Be kind to yourself and be honest. Lots of people will have advice for you that is very well intentioned and you know people will care for you but they've always got a perspective where I think the greatest gift that you can give yourself is your own perspective for your own life and so what if it messes up so what if you fail you're learning it's part of a a progression so I think I would say give yourself the opportunity to to connect with yourself and actually think about what it is that you want and are you prepared to fail and if you are then go for it tell us a little bit about what your life looks like now six years down the track i've kept those 25 kilos that made me so unhappy off i ended up meeting someone really great and completely unexpectedly uh, my new career uh, it turns out i adored and i've made the greatest friends i could have ever imagined and I'm much poorer for the career change, but I'm much, much richer. I uh, got married again, despite my uh, uh, vows that I would never do anything so stupid and rash ever again. I have an eight-week-old baby in the next room um, who's the love of my life already. She's a joy. And I'm. there are plenty of challenges in my life, you know, very stressful things sometimes, but on the fundamentals, I'm really happy.
And now, I want to introduce you to an expert who's read the studies on what works and what doesn't when it comes to effective goal setting. My name is Lisa Williams, and I'm a senior lecturer in the School of Psychology at UNSW Sydney. I asked Dr. Williams what the research shows about sticking to a goal beyond the middle of the month. The first thing she mentioned is that it's a good idea to set a goal with a broader aim in mind. So you might have a goal to lose some weight or boost your fitness, but the broader and more intrinsic goal might be just to be healthier. And so if you set goals around those broader reasons and then engage in specific tasks that you'd like to get into to meet those goals, that's, that's going to be more effective than simply saying, I'm going to lose weight. And maybe you set specific aims to engage in exercise a certain number of days per week, or maybe cut your meat intake another certain number of days per week. Another source of successful goal setting comes from crafting an environment that's going to be particularly conducive to meeting your goals. She told me about a study that looked at a methodology called experience sampling, where participants were pinged messages several times a day on their phones, so they could report back on how they're going against their goals and how they were even feeling about their goals. And a bit of a surprising thing came out of that study. It wasn't that the people who were most successful were resisting temptations. It was actually that the most successful people weren't even encountering temptations. That is to say they were crafting an environment where temptations didn't arise. So we could make this a bit more tangible. Let's say your New Year's resolution is to... Um, avoid logging into Instagram every hour. Well, there are a couple things you might do. One is uninstall it from your phone or even simply log out as a little barrier. I told Dr. Williams about how in a former job, I used to pass this delicious hot chip shop on the way home from work every day. And well, that was the year I ate a lot of hot chips. Until I resolved to walk home a different way and just avoid that shop altogether. That's an excellent example of crafting your environment. And I think that one one route that if maybe let's say that's your only way home, one thing you can do is set what research has identified or what research calls implementation intentions, which are just contingency plans about what would happen if you found yourself in front of the hot chip shop. Uh, and one thing is maybe to buy something else or to do something else rewarding in that moment to kind of deflect your desire to go buy the delicious hot chips. <sighs> Let's just stop the interview and go to the hot chip shop right now. (laughs) What can the research show us about what's ineffective, what really doesn't work? One kind of surefire way to set up a goal that you may not meet in the end is to set goals for which you have zero intrinsic enjoyment. And so if you know that you hate, hate, hate running, but your goal is to take up running in the new year, that's probably not going to be terribly effective. Instead, uh, if you can find a goal where there's some sort of intrinsic enjoyment in doing the task, or at least the possibility that over time you'll find it more enjoyable, then chances are you're going to succeed. And you've probably heard it's a good idea to find a friend who shares your aims and tackle a goal together, whether that's hitting the gym or going for more bushwalks or doing a course. And it turns out that idea is pretty well supported by research. We know from a whole history of social psychology just how rewarding social relationships are. 
Uh, and we know from a bit of research that when individuals undertake difficult goal setting together, that they're more likely to kind of see to the end of the goal and to even carry on that goal past when the formal period is ended. I think this is partly what drives the increased public sharing of our New Year's resolutions. Um, And so if you do want to find a friend, so to speak, then talking about your goals with your friends are a really nice way is a really nice way to do that. Now, the the next thing is to actually carve out shared time where you guys can check in on each other and hold each other about accountable. Because at the end of the day, that external accountability does matter. And if you find your own temptations kind of creeping in, then someone checking in on you and offering support can be really powerful. I guess that feel like that comes with so much risk because if you publicly declare your goals and then you end up not meeting them, then you sort of have to suffer the shame of, you know, being somebody who has failed. There can be. At the at the end of the day, maybe you want to choose your friend a bit carefully so that they're less likely to shame you if you fail. Uh, I think that the most powerful examples of this type of social goal setting actually come from the idea that we can help regulate each other's goals. So in, in fact, what you might find is that the miniature successes that you might experience on your way to a goal, you may not celebrate, but your friend who's pursuing the goal at the same time may actually point those out and help you celebrate those. And at the same time, in moments of failure where you want to chuck the whole thing in the bag and walk away, maybe they'll be able to help you point out that it's only one hiccup on your path to whatever your goal may be and help you recalibrate, reset, maybe reset that range or to reduce the temptations in your environment. In an article she wrote for The Conversation, Lisa Williams described a study where participants were given a bag of M&Ms and asked to eat as few as possible across 25 minutes. Some were asked to set a specific goal of how few they thought they could realistically eat, like five while others set what they called a range goal, meaning I'm just going to eat between five and eight, for example. The ones who set the range goal reported that their goal seemed more challenging but was also more attainable, and they felt more accomplishment at the end of the 25 minutes and more interested in pursuing the goal again. The researchers who did that study found similar effects with weight loss and spending money. And Lisa Williams says you could use the same trick if your New Year's resolution is, say, to use social media less. So instead of saying, I'm going to get off social media four days a week, you're going to say, I'm going to get off social media two to five days a week, right? So in that is the same goal. But there's various psychological processes that are invoked in that range goal. So setting a range can actually be more effective. And to back that up, then what you want to do is revisit that range over time. So maybe come February, how are you tracking against that range? Was that actually unrealistic or maybe was it even too easy? You can re-engage in goal setting later in the year. Um, And I think leveraging those two at once, kind of the calibration of your range and setting a range to begin with is a nice one-two punch. Can you tell me what the research shows about the importance of habits? Research suggests that in terms of long-term goal attainment, what we know is that the most efficacious individuals actually take a goal, a behavior, uh, and set that into a habit that becomes part of their daily routine. So what habits do is it removes the choice of engaging in a behavior in a particular moment and actually simply makes it part of our behavioral routine. So 
Some of the best evidence of this does come from picking up exercise goals. What they find is that maybe in the beginning of picking up a new exercise routine, that there is some effort involved in deciding to go do it. But people who experience the most success in that actually set up a particular time, maybe every day or a particular day per week. They lay out their clothes. There's no actual choice involved in engaging in the behavior. So in terms of long-term goal success, what we see is habits are incredibly important. I mean, sometimes I do wonder, like, is willpower even real? That's a great question. It turns out social psychologists uh, disagree pretty broadly on whether that's that's a thing. So the, the scientific term that's often used is self-control or self-regulation. And for a long time, research pointed to willpower or self-control kind of as this personality trait that maybe you have and don't have. But... Increasingly, the types of tips that we've talked about today point to the fact that actually engaging in effective goal pursuit has more to do with these other contextual factors than who you are at the end of the day. There are individual differences in how prone to temptation some individuals are, and there are individual differences also in how persistent people are in the face of failure. But I think to sum it up in terms of some people do have willpower and other people don't is probably simply too uh, simplistic a view. I asked Dr. Williams about what the research shows about stopping a habit that's bad for you as opposed to starting a new goal that's good for you. Well, we know a lot of some of the common bad behaviors that people set New Year's resolutions around, um, such as stopping smoking, actually have a biological basis. So we're, we're looking at true addiction in that form. But in terms of stopping other behaviors that might be slightly less noxious, uh, maybe using social media less or checking your work email less, Um, It turns out that we engage in some of those behaviors because they're rewarding and in some ways rewarding in a similar way as the more biologically based addictions, right? After all, we do behaviors because they feel good. And so if our goals are to engage less in a behavior that feels good, then really what you need to do is understand why. Why does that feel good? And find other things that kind of replace that. So for instance, if... If, if your goal is to be on social media less, then there is some part of you that recognizes that maybe that's not the best behavior for you. But understanding why you might find it so enjoyable, maybe it actually is that you really enjoy the social interaction you get. Well, a positive goal, right, the positive behavioral goal to replace the negative don't do that behavioral goal with is to actually seek face-to-face time with your friends um, or even calling them on the phone. So understanding the rewards that underlie the behaviors that we might want to stop doing helps us carve out behaviors that we might set goals to engage in to shift that over time. So for example, if you don't want to be checking your phone first thing in the morning, a simple thing to do is to not have it on your bedside, charge it in the living room or kitchen so that the first thing you do is maybe to cuddle your cat or <laughs> or say hi to your loved one rather than jumping right on your phone. I love that you put the cat before the loved one. <laughs> yeah, that's, you're, not, you're not wrong. Do you always stick to your New Year's resolutions? 
So this all comes a bit hypocritical. I actually tend not to set New Year's resolutions. I have broader goals in my life that I do bring in um, friends to help me regulate and track over time. I don't particularly take the end of the year as highly symbolic on that front. Um, so the types of things that we've been talking about today I think are really important. Whether you're setting New Year's resolutions or decadal plans for your life or simply a goal for what you're gonna get through this week. The last expert we're hearing from today is Amanda Salas, who researches weight loss at the University of Sydney. Maybe weight loss isn't one of your goals, but I think a lot of us know that feeling of having overindulged at Christmas and New Year's and feeling like it might be time to step away from the ham and put down the champagne flute and maybe go for a walk or a swim or a run. Dr Salas says that's your fat break at work. That's B-R-A-K-E, like the brakes of a car. And here's how she explained what she means by the fat break. Even before you see a difference on the scales or even before you feel a difference in your, in your clothes pinching and getting tighter, your body actually knows that you've taken on more energy than it needs. And this is due to chemical reactions that happen. So, for example, your body's fat stores, when they get a tiny bit bigger or um, heavier, they'll release hormones that travel through your bloodstream into your brain and tell your brain, oh, there's excess energy on board. What your body does to help reverse this is that it does three main effects. Number one is it reduces your appetite or your drive to eat. Number two, it increases your propensity to move about and also it increases the amount of energy or kilojoules that you burn when you do move about. And number three, not all people but a large number of people, it increases your metabolic rate which is the number of kilojoules your body burns when you're at rest. And that second one she mentioned there, the propensity to move, a sort of restlessness, it can come out in pretty interesting ways, she said. It can come out in fidgeting. Um, you often see this in young children. You look at the kids in the holidays and they've eaten loads of food and drunken lots of stuff and they zip around like mosquitoes in a glass jar. You know, adults also do it. Even adults are overfed and they're told not to exercise. They start moving uncontrollably. So a leg might go up and down or fingers and elbows start jostling and or they get up and they pace uncontrollably. And we know that from studies. Yes, that's been shown in research. So this is the type of research, which sounds like a lot of fun, but it's actually hard to get volunteers for this type of research where people are overfed with rich foods for a period of days to weeks, and then they're studied in laboratory conditions. And these are the types of things we see. They start reaching for things like salads and light, crunchy types of foods as opposed to heavy, stodgy foods. They pace around. Some people even burn as many as around 3,000 kilojoules per day, which is 700 kilo calories in the old system, just from pacing. And there's also increases in body temperature. I asked Amanda Salas to describe what exactly is happening inside our bodies as we start a new health kick. And she told me all about this chemical called glycogen. Before our bodies store fat, 
our bodies also place some of the excess kilojoules that we consumed in holiday dinners and things, places it in glycogen, which is a form of stored carbohydrate. And they also carry a lot of water with them, around three times the weight in water. Your body stores glycogen in your muscles and your liver along with water. And this acts as a quick energy source when you haven't eaten for a while. So for example, between meals, your body uses glycogen. And also at the start of a weight loss plan, your body uses glycogen as well. And when you start eating less, you're following those cues from the fat break, you're eating less, you may be moving more, your body will first dip into your glycogen stores. And that'll also release not only the weight of the glycogen in your body, which is about half a kilo, it will also release the weight of the water that's carried with that glycogen, which is around a couple of kilos. So that's why when you start losing weight, you'll probably notice that you need to pee a lot, go to the bathroom a lot, and that's the water coming out um, along with the glycogen being burned and just enjoy it because it will contribute to fast weight loss. There's often a perception that fast weight loss is not a desirable thing. What do you think about that? What does the research show on that? We have heard this adage for many years that slow and steady is the way to go when it comes to weight loss. However, new and emerging research is showing that losing weight fast does not lead to fast weight regain. So if you lose weight fast or slow, you still regain weight. Weight regain is a normal part of weight loss. It happens to so many people. Just because you've lost weight fast, it doesn't mean you'll regain it faster. Mm. And in fact, if you lose weight fast, you'll actually lose more weight. And so if you're regaining weight from a lower lowest ever weight, then you'll still be better off three and five years down the track. But you've also written that eventually that fat break deactivates. How and why? Our bodies have an optimum level of energy stores or fat stores that that is referred to often as the set point. This is the amount of fat or energy that our body strives to maintain constantly and optimally for us. Come January, you're all gung-ho about the weight loss program, eating less, moving more. Your body's fat stores or your body's energy stores will reduce and they will reduce back down towards your set point. Once your fat stores or your energy stores are back down at your set point, then the fat break is deactivated and you're no longer being given that helping hand or that wind in your sails for, for weight loss. So you said initially when you start moving more and eating less, your body dips into its glycogen stores, releases that first. How long does that go for? You have enough glycogen on your body to last for a few days of very restricted energy intake or food and beverage intake. So the loss of glycogen and the water that goes with it will last for one, two or three days, the first one to three days of your weight loss program. After that, your body dips more readily into the fat stores. I mean, your body starts dipping into your fat stores immediately, but it's easier for your body to get at the glycogen for energy. So it goes there first. But after three days, no more glycogen left. You'll get into your fat stores. I mean, you're somebody who studies this question of weight loss and willpower and self-control is a huge part of that question and part of that debate. So, you know, after all your years of studying it, where have you landed? What do you think is the role of self-control and willpower? I don't believe in willpower because I haven't got any. If there's a chocolate there, I will eat it. You know, some people have got willpower. My husband's got willpower. We're on a Qantas flight. We both get given a little red chocolate ball and I eat it straight away and he puts it aside 
aside and saves it for dinner. Yeah, some people have it, some some people don't. But I don't believe willpower is a make or break thing when it comes to losing weight successfully. And that's because I don't think you need it. I mean, you've got your body to help you. It's not that it takes willpower and white knuckling, but it, it does take a bit of commitment. You've also got the environment. If there's little chocolate balls in my house, I'll be eating them all the time. But if they're not there, I don't eat them and I don't think about them. So yeah, willpower is very fickle, not necessary. I'm with you on the little red chocolate balls. Just to sort of sum up, what do you think is the best way to think about getting healthy and starting a health kick at this time of year? There's so many different ways to lose weight. And we know from research that there's no right or wrong way. There's options for fast weight loss for some people. There's options for very slow weight loss. There's programs for people with eating disorders. There's all sorts of ways to do it. There's do-it-yourself that you could do, for example, just by listening to your body. That's, by the way, how I lost the 30 kilos or so. What we know is that there's no better time than right now. Did you just say you lost 30 kilos? Can you just tell me that story? What happened there? That's the reason why I do medical research in weight loss, because I was struggling with weight. I was 93 kilos and always struggling with that adage, you eat less and you move more and you keep going until you get there. And it never worked for me. I mean, it works for a while, those first few kilos, but then you hit the brick wall and it becomes really hard to continue losing weight. Holy mackerel. Talk about burying the lead. You left the most interesting (laughs) part to the end. So... At that time, had you already started this field of research or? No. I can remember it was Easter and I'd been dieting for six years and I hadn't lost any weight overall. So I took this decision. I said, right, that's it. No more diets for me. I stopped dieting and I finished my science degree and went on to do a PhD and it was all focused on research to find better ways to lose weight and keep it off. As part of the process of that, I found some things that that helped me and that's that's what I did. I mean, I listened to my body and I, from having learned about the fat break and how it would put the wind in my sails after things like Easter binges and uh, Christmas and holiday overindulgences, that was very empowering and helped me to lose little gusts of weight. Fantastic. What, a, what an inspiration. Can we just acknowledge for a moment that it is not easy? In the beginning, I think a lot of people notice that it's quite straightforward. You do this, you do that, and you lose weight. But everybody recognises that inevitably you come up against a wall, and that's what I call the famine reaction. And that's your body's reactions that are stopping you from losing weight, and that is really hard to work against. And it's, yeah, it's never easy. And also one thing that's really important to recognise is that keeping weight off is harder than losing it in the first way place because when you're losing it you also get the motivation of whoa I'm size x now instead of size y you know there's a there's a thrill with that but with maintenance it's just more of the same and and it's hard it's a lifelong relationship that you have with your weight right exactly I mean excess weight is never cured it's only ever managed so you'll have a relationship with that for the rest of your life Amanda Salas and her team are running randomised controlled trials in Sydney, looking at finding better ways to lose weight and keep it off in safe ways. 
they're investigating fast weight loss and comparing it with slow weight loss. And also um, looking at that concept of the set point and whether we can reduce the set point once you've reached a point where you feel that your set point has been elevated, well, can that actually be reduced and can you lose weight? So we are recruiting for a new weight loss trial starting in Sydney and we're looking for 300 people who want to lose weight for science. So if you're living in Sydney and you're interested, Google Amanda Salas, send me an email, let me know, and I'd be really happy to hear from you. That's Amanda Salas, S-A-L-I-S, and you can also find her on the University of Sydney website. Trust Me, I'm an Expert is a podcast from The Conversation, where we bring you the stories, ideas and insights from the world of academic research. I'm Sananda Cray. Special thanks today to Lisa Williams from UNSW and Amanda Salas from the University of Sydney. And a very special thanks to Amy for sharing her story with us. Our theme beats are by Uncle Ho from Elephant Tracks, and we've used music in this podcast by Poddington Bear from Free Music Archive. You can see a full list of music credits on our website at theconversation.com. And while you're there, go and check out our other podcasts, like Media Files, on how the media is doing its job. Media Files, or Trust Me, I'm an Expert, are out every month. Find us and subscribe in Apple Podcasts or Pocket Casts, and rate and review us while you're there. Chat to you next month, and good luck with your New Year's resolutions.